This is the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Anfield. Hello and welcome to the latest Blood Red podcast. I'm Matt Addison and while there is no football for Liverpool FC to enjoy this weekend, we do have a very special guest here for you instead. If you haven't listened to the FSG Boston Red Sox and Liverpool podcast from last week, this one kind of follows on from that one. So I'd recommend that you go back and download that one first from the exact same place that you got this one from. In that one, we looked in detail at FSG's Liverpool strategy as a whole, but this podcast goes straight to the heart of a topic lots of Liverpool fans understandably get very excited about. Transfers and how Liverpool go about signing players. Michael Edwards quite rightly has an excellent reputation among Liverpool fans, but he, along with the rest of the transfer team, analysts and scouts, were inspired to use data and statistics to find marginal advantages and undervalued assets like Andy Robertson or Mohamed Salah by one man. This week, I FaceTime Moneyball founder Billy Bean of the Oakland A's and baseball fame, the man who first used data to help sports teams punch above their weight, finding value in the market with unfancied players. With the news coming out last week that Manchester City had been let off their financial fair play misdemeanours, those advantages that Liverpool have over their rivals when it comes to smart recruitment might just have got even more important. Liverpool have adopted a similar moneyball strategy under FSG, something that Jurgen Klopp has embraced, and the Reds have reaped the rewards. Football analytics is something that fascinates me, and this is a conversation with the man who basically invented it. This is what happened when I spoke to baseball legend Billy Bean from his home in California. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. We understand that you're a big football fan. I know you got into football by a trip to White Hart Lane. So does that mean you're a Tottenham fan? <laughs> I'm actually not. I, uh, I, uh, well, the two things. No, I'm not. I, I, I mean, at least I'm a fan of what, the way they uh, run the Spurs. I think that, you know they do a great job as well in so many different aspects. And Daniel Levy is one of the, probably the best sports executives in the world. But no, I'm, I'm, I was a Tottenham fan at the outset because a friend of mine who you're familiar with, uh, former Liverpool sporting director, Damian Kamali, uh, was really one of the first uh, men in football that I met and got to know. We've become, he's a longtime friend. So that started uh, my, my uh, that's why I started with Spurs. And then, and then, you know, when John Henry, uh, who's been a long, John Henry and Tom Werner, who are longtime friends, uh, back uh, when they bought Liverpool, and then, you know, Damian was there, it was really easy to, to root for Liverpool. Uh, so, uh, uh, and it's easy now, mainly because, uh, you know, again, my association with, with John and Tom and, uh, you know, just the way they do their business. First of all, it's, you know, they an amazingly well-run football team, a fun team to watch, you know, gr- you know, great manager, just sort of incorporate everything you'd want in a sports, you know, successful sports team and uh, sports club. And uh, so they're easy to root for. Yeah, you mentioned John Henry and, and FSG, and we'll come to those in just a second. But I mean, just in, in terms of, of money ball, I'm sure it's a, a phrase that you get asked about plenty of, of times. I mean, just in your words, what does what does money ball mean? Oh man, you know, I, you know, over the years, I've had uh, so many times people have asked me to define it. I'm not sure. I think it's sort of somewhat. There's there's been an evolution. I think it's 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 changed how people perceive it. I mean, Michael Lewis was the. Uh, in fact, when he came up with a with the name, I thought it was the dumbest name I'd ever heard in my life. I thought when he wrote the book, I said, "Nobody's going to read this. This is a stupid name for a book, too." So, uh, I, I, you know, it, again, I think it's really hard. I, I'm almost at a loss as to actually. You know, some people like to 
to uh, think that it's just the applied use of, you know, objective analysis to, uh, to decisions. Some of it thinks it's about finding uh, inefficiencies in, a, uh, in, uh, in different markets, not just, you know, sports. Uh, again, I think it means a lot. It's a, some to some people means uh, you know changing a traditional culture. So I think it has a lot of different meanings. And and again, uh, since uh, Michael Lewis is the one who uh, uh, came up with the uh, the name, I sort of he he describes it better than anybody. And I always let him describe it because he's a lot brighter than I am. When the FSG first came into to Liverpool, the term Moneyball was used quite a lot. I mean, it was almost seen by some Liverpool fans as, as negative because they saw it as a way to do something cheaply and, and make a profit. But that's not really what it's about, no. is it? Oh, yeah. In fact, I'm glad you said it. That, that you're exactly right. I think the assumption is, is that, you know, when that term is used, particularly with a sports team, is that you're, you're always looking to spend as little as possible, you're, which is actually couldn't, have been, couldn't be further from the truth. In fact, not only have they done it in Liverpool, but they did it in Boston. Some, some business decisions and certainly a lot of sports decisions actually cost a lot. And they're worth four, you know, far more than you put into them. I mean, as an example, Michael Jordan, whatever he was paid for, whatever he was paid by the Chicago Bulls, he was worth exponentially more. Now, for us, it was always with us in Oakland. Uh, the assumption was is that we were always looking to do things as cheaply as possible. That wasn't actually true. We were ultimately looking to find undervalued assets in the term of player performance. And hopefully, at some point, that, that asset value, even the, the player value, would uh, continue to increase. But the, the challenge we had in Oakland was there's a lot of really good decisions that cost a lot of money uh, in sports that we were not allowed to make. Uh, a great example is Liverpool, Mo Salah, right? Uh, you, you know, when you, I think I think they spent forty million uh, pounds, I believe it was forty million pounds on him from from Italy, and you know this, and, which was a lot of money. And uh, and and at the time, I think people thought it was too much. But as it turned out, he was worth far more than they paid for him. So, to me, it, that's that's a great example of, uh, of of really sort of exploiting a data advantage, uh, and, and and again, spending a lot of money but getting far more value out of what you initially spent. And and again, I think that that is. I'm glad you actually brought that up because people make the assumption that it's just about spending as little as you possibly can, which just couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, analytics had, had been used in, in baseball or certainly talked about for a while. But I mean, no one had, had put quite so much trust in it as, as what you had back, you know, back when you were, were doing that sort of thing. It, it must have taken great courage. And I suppose you can maybe relate to Liverpool buying Mo Salah. As you say, that was a big transfer fee to spend. Most people thought it was a mistake at the time, but actually they had to, to have the trust in what the data was telling them. Yeah, absolutely right. You know, another guy that comes to mind too is not just Salah, you know, but Virgil Van Dyke. I mean, he was the uh, at the time it may still be the case the most expensive uh, defender and uh, transfer fee I think in history. And and I don't think anybody would tell you that he's he hasn't been worth that and more. So uh, from our end, it's funny. Everyone uses that term like you know. I think that the courage, the challenge is, is when you're in sports, you're making decisions uh, and you're going out there and you're trying to convince a public that that where every person from the seven-year-old who follows your football team or baseball team to the 81-year-old who's always followed, they will immediately have an opinion. So you face a lot of noise. And uh, But for us in, in, in Oakland, when we first started, we, we didn't necessarily see this courage. We thought it was a more rational way to make a decision. And in fact, since we were doing it with information, we thought it was actually a less risky way to make decisions than opposed to just 
you know, every time a decision came up, we had no process whatsoever, which or no roadmap as to how we made it. And and so for us, we actually viewed it the opposite way. We thought it was less risky using uh, data and information to help you be more predictive uh, with your decisions. And I remember in, in Liverpool, if you and you recall more than I do, was uh, when they put together the quote unquote transfer committee, they were sort of ridiculed for that. Uh and as it's turned out, it doesn't sound like it was such a bad idea. They, they have a, it, what, again, I'm speaking as someone who doesn't work there, but has a, you know, sort of an idea probably how they're doing things. But it's obvious they created a, a very collaborative process driven from information, driven by information. And they have a manager who is seamlessly, uh, you know, involved in that process. And, and, and it, it, it works, you know, beautifully on the pitch. And then again, that's the goal of every sports team to do what Liverpool has done. And the other thing too, is I always, again, I, you know, at, at, when you look at Liverpool, you could see each year their decisions. They were, they were, even though they've, they, they have spent a lot, but they haven't certainly spent as much as many of their competitors, but you could see the gap narrowing and narrowing each year. And to the point where you got, you, you know, you end up with what you have this year where they, they won the premier league. So, uh, and ultimately teams like that, it was funny in Oakland, what's going to be interesting next year is you've got, you know, a club like Liverpool, who's at the top of the food chain, who, who, well, you know, honestly, you know, can really exploit the data advantage because they have capital to do it. But then you have another club down a championship this year. This is going to be interesting to see. Uh, what I, I'll be really curious to see is when Brentford comes into the Premier League, and if they can kind of, you know, kind of keep their heads above water for a couple of years, it's going to be really fun to see the impact that they have because I think they make decisions in a very similar uh, way as as Liverpool does. They just do it with less capital. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Liverpool, obviously, their, their transfers and, and that transfer committee that you mentioned, it, it doesn't just target players for the first team. It, it goes further down and, and into the youth ranks as well. I mean, how how deep do the, the stats and, and the data go through the age groups? Because you think of someone like Harvey Elliott that Liverpool signed when he was 16. Could he have been a data signing or, or was he simply too young for, for the data to be available? Well, it's different. Data. You're using different uh, metrics. Uh, for, in fact, I'll give you an example. That, and, uh, his name escapes me, but last year Liverpool picked up a young man who was playing in Arita Vizi as like a 15 or a 16-year-old. And if you tell me his name, uh, it'll strike Sepp, Sepp Vandenberg? I believe that. Was that it? He was a 15. Yeah. He was playing Arita Vizi. And what's interesting about that, to me, that transaction was fascinating and really kind of says it all. Everybody's sort of looking for young players. And just because somebody's young doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be a great player in any sport. What's interesting is when you have, when you say take a 15 or 16 year old who in the States, he would be in his second year of high school or sophomore in high school. And if the data suggests that he's performing at the average level of say an of easy player, and he's 15 or 16. That to me is the real, you know, exploitation of, of of data. And and again, I we'll see how the young man turns out. But there's a lot of evidence that that was an incredibly shrewd, relatively cost-effective risk to take on a guy that you had data on at a very young age. Just because a guy's 15 years old uh, doesn't mean he's going to be a great player. You know, there's a rush to acquire young players. Uh, but there's other things with younger players that are, their age is certainly important, but you know, you also, we have the same situation here in the States. I mean, amateur players, while we will use data and where there are certain metrics, they are not as applicable as they would be say at the highest level, uh, the, the, the metrics that were, or in the information we're gathering at the highest level of major league baseball. But there are certain metrics that are important when, when, you know, either, you know, signing or investing in players, it just may not necessarily be all based on performance. 
There's obvious differences between baseball and football. So to, to what extent really can that sort of money ball approach translate? Because I suppose football is a lot more fluid and, and it's not maybe as easy to, to quantify some of the things. Yeah, I'm not going to pretend to be a, a you know mathematician or a computer science model or anything like that. But the way I've always looked at it, it's interesting. People make the assumption because just because it's a stop-start sport that baseball, and you know, cricket would fall into that category as well, that it lends itself uh, better to measurement. And it certainly lends itself better to, to evaluating some things. That being said, the amount of information that happens on a, uh, a football pitch during a match is exponentially greater than it is in a baseball game. And so I've always found, and again, I'm not going to, you know, this isn't for gospel, but the more data and the more data points that I could give really smart people who worked with me, uh, the better models and the better predict, better predictive models they were going to be able to create. So even though it is a movement sport and you are measuring and different things, uh, you know, there are different things that you're measuring and it's not, again, doesn't stop and start. There is a lot of data, a lot of information. The more information you have, I've always felt like the better you, again, the better you're going to be in, in, in predicting, uh, creating predictive models. The other thing, too, is that, you know, a close friend of mine, Daryl Morey with the Houston Rockets, uh, they've been uh, they've been using data to make decisions. You know, the Warriors, the same thing here. And it's a not dissimilar sport. It's a movement sport. Uh, it's just on a smaller court and smaller surface with less people. But ultimately, the goal is kind of the same. You're trying to get a basketball and a goal. You're trying to get a foot uh, and same thing as in football. So uh, movement sports, uh, just it may be different, but there's still data and there's information that can help you make, again, more objective decisions. That's my that's my belief. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. There was a piece actually in the, the New York Times quite recently that, that said Liverpool had, had taken Moneyball as a concept but upgraded it to the next level. I, I wonder what you make of, of that concept. No, there's no doubt. Again, uh, I, again, I use the example, you know, in Oakland or, you know, even a place like you take a, a club like Brentford, who I've been following for years, is there's like there's some decisions that they would love to make on a global level. They just don't have the capital to make them. They know that they're good decisions. So they're actually operating with this much smaller uh, group of players that they have access to because of the capital. When you get to a club like Liverpool that actually does have resources, have brains, uh, that's that's essentially that's when the game and it really starts to change. You know, for us here in baseball, I use this in Boston. You know, uh, you know, as I said, I've known John and Tom, the owners, for years, and Theo Epstein, the, the guy who uh, executed their, their strategy, is a close friend of mine. But in Oakland, like similar to Brent, where we could have operated in this little space and nobody really would have cared. But when you have a you, you, when you have a bigger business or, or a bigger club or like a Liverpool or a Red Sox, when they really start when they start applying objective decision making, that's really what changes the game because it forces the big clubs on a top down. And you usually you'll start to see a domino approach because they have to adjust because every year Liverpool spends less than, you know, if you look at the top six clubs, not that they haven't spent money. But they've spent it incredibly wisely and they've been incredibly efficient. And ultimately, the top clubs, in my opinion, will have to adjust to the way they're doing things. Otherwise, you know, again, the efficiency will just continue to to overwhelm everybody. Yeah, John W. Henry and and FSG then, they asked you to to work for the Boston Red Sox because of the work that you've done with the the Oakland A's. Have they ever asked you to, to do anything with Liverpool? Oh, we just as, as friends, you know, I, I, again, it's, it's, uh, no, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's flattering that you ask, uh, uh, but we, we are friends. They know I follow the club and, and, 
and they know I'm a huge fan, but, but, but no, they've got more than capable people. Obviously I have to believe it's Mike Edwards just uh, does a lot of the stuff in the in front office there. And, and they've got, as you said, a br- not only a brilliant manager, but a brilliant face of the club over there in Jurgen Klopp. So there's no need for any services of mine over there. They're perfectly fine without me. <laughs> It's very, very modest of you to say. I'm sure a lot of, of what Michael Edwards does is, is almost inspired by what you do and, and that sort of thing. Have you ever have you ever met Michael Edwards? No, no, but I've it's just I've been such a fan of the way they've done things over there. Literally, I mean, over the last few years, you know, because I do follow pretty closely and I follow from an objective standpoint, and literally every move they make, it's just like you know exactly why they're doing it. And it's just absolutely incredible. And, you know, the other thing is the beauty of it, too, is it's an it's an aesthetically pleasing team, too. They're so fun to watch. And then when you combine it with arguably some of the best uh, sports fans in the entire world, you really, I mean, it's incredible uh, what they've done. And so, so I, it's, I'm just such a big fan of, of what they've done. And, and again, you know, they faced criticism early on in a very traditional sport and traditional business. But I remember listening to the, you know, I listened to the podcasts over there and I remember you know, all the ridicule the, the, the club got for creating a transfer committee, you know, and and uh, and really what the, it was a way of saying we're going we're gonna to create a process and it's going to be a process driven, you know, by data, driven by collaboration, driven by information, and it's going to extend to the pitch and and nobody's nobody's uh, ridiculing it now, are they? So, you know, hats off to the entire organization and, and, and Michael Edwards. It's and again, I, you know, for a guy who's had such incredible success with what he's done, he, he, he really doesn't get as much sort of international uh, credit as he should because it's, it's, again, brilliantly executed. Yeah, you, you mentioned Damien Camoli before, and I think he was possibly a part of a transfer committee at, at one stage. I mean, how, how did you meet him and, and what made you believe that he was the right person for Liverpool? Well, Damien reached out to when the book came out uh, here in the States. He was really one of the first football people that uh, reached. He reached out to me like very soon after the book came out and just wanted to sort of get to you get to wanted us to get to know each other and was very fascinated about the approach we took in baseball and was interested in, in doing a similar approach in football. So that's how our friendship started. Gosh, it goes back to maybe. 04, 05. The book came out in 03. And so it was probably within a year, year and a half. Uh, we met up in, you know, Germany during the World Cup, uh, you know, in 06. And, you know, he comes over multiple times a year to the States. And again, we've just, just been a friendship, you know, based ultimately, I think, on sort of a common way of seeing the world. But, you know, since then, we've become very, very, very close friends. And, uh, and again, he's a very bright guy, very open minded guy. And, uh, you know, I always like to say, you know, uh, you know, he's moved to a few clubs, but, uh, you know, I remember the Brendan Rogers club, a lot of those players that were on that club, you know, guys who are still, you know, Jordan Henderson, you know, was one of, I believe one of the guys he helped bring in obviously Luis Suarez, which was an incredible acquisition, you know, from Maria Vizzi. So yeah, I'm a, a good, hey, I'm a little biased. He's a close friend, but I'm also sort of kind of quite proud of some of the things that happened there for him. Uh, you know, that, uh, you know, some are still around today with like, again, like Jordan Henderson. Yeah, Jordan Henderson, I think the the prime example. And I mean, we, we've spoken sort of about how the, the numbers show you which players are best to purchase, but it can't just be numbers, can it, when a transfer is made? There's a lot more to it, maybe, you know, assessing a player's character and, and how well they might fit into the group. I mean, what's the sort of process there? Would you look at the, the numbers first and, and then assess that? Or, or can you assess that in the same way, perhaps? 
Yeah, I wish you could assess that in the same way. I mean, listen, someday there will be an, object, an objective way of sort of, uh, of finding things like that. But to answer your question, you kind of said it in there. Listen, the first thing we want to do is, without any sort of bias, look at a player's performance. And then and then some of the other homework that you're talking about comes into play. You know, uh, and again, you have to sort of balance the two. You know, all all players, are they're, they're different. They're different personalities. And uh, they're not all going to be exactly the same which is why it's so challenging for a, a major league manager in baseball or in football, the manager, the really great managers are able to bring different personalities. They may all be, you know, sort of the perfect teammate in some cases, but to be able to sort of incorporate them into your club successfully and take advantage of their skill sets, that's the real genius. And that's why man- you know, the great managers get paid what they do. And, uh, you know, so again, you look at the players that have gone through Liverpool the last six or seven years, they're all some of them very different personalities, but uh, you know, and and but but ultimately, the the, the success and blending those two things in is, is very, very challenging. And and, and I, I do hope that some of the things you're talking about we are able to uh, to measure, but right now, uh, I haven't found a way, so we we look at the data first and then try and uh, try and get as much information on uh you know, non-objective things, uh, you, know, it, it, you know, as best we can. I know you, you have roles with uh, the San Jose Earthquakes, with AZ Alkmaar and, and Barnsley. I mean, is it a similar role that you play across all of those in, in terms of, of using the, the data for, for recruitment? Uh, you know, not so much. I think, surprisingly, despite the proximity and our ownership owns the Quakes, I've had a little to do there. I think I've always sort of, sort of been interested in... Uh, European football, I just found it, you know, on the history and a little more interesting. Now at Alkmaar, my association there is, but I'm so proud of what's gone on there. I mean, Robert Enhorn, a longtime friend, former Major League Baseball player who grew up in Holland, and we've been friends, but the execution from the top uh, in Alkmaar has just been unbelievable. I'm so proud to be associated with him. It's not dissimilar to Liverpool, it's just on a smaller stage. I mean, they've got one of the youngest, most exciting teams in Europe right now. Uh, they're doing it on a much smaller budget, but uh, the key there has been how the the uh, the, the I think, well, we'll call, use the term we use in the states, the front office. I guess they call it the boardroom there. How they have executed a similar strategy as Liverpool. They've just done it on uh, a smaller stage, uh, and and they're again, you know, at the end, of, I don't know if you follow Rita Vizi, but for a club that size to be tied with Ajax. Uh, at, at the point when the season ended, and and if you watch that team, it's not only is it a, a very good team, but it's a very exciting young team with a lot of squad squad value going forward. So I, I'm proud of my association there, and, and those and the people there have really, again, not dissimilar to what Liverpool done. Have executed uh, an incredible uh, a strategy that's uh, that's based on objective decision making. Yeah, as you say, at the moment, there's there's a couple of clubs who use data and, and numbers to the almost the maximum potential. But there's lots of other teams who don't do that. Do you think if if other teams were to, to follow along and, and do the same thing, it, you almost lose the edge that, that you have by using the data? Well, yeah, I think, listen, it gets harder and harder in baseball. Baseball's become very, very bright and very intelligent. Uh, and um, I mean, the guys running baseball teams now are just are really, really uh really smart so uh it's tough it's getting tougher and tougher every year to, to compete at some point you'll have an efficient market in baseball where uh, you know your payroll will determine where you where you finish in many cases i think there's still a huge opportunity in football because there's so many different football clubs and uh really the, the difference in football is really the trick this is a little too simple but 
you, if you can value a player a value a player better than your competitors, all you have to do is you know theoretically offer one dollar more. And there's just still lots of opportunities to do that because there's just so hundreds of different football clubs out there. Uh, so, uh, but uh, but yeah, I mean it's gonna you know the game as more information is available and and really really bright people enter into the sports field, which they are doing now. It certainly happened in baseball. I mean I think baseball is one of the smartest industries in the world. I mean we're competing for employees that uh that you know i'm competing with google i'm competing with goldman sachs to hire employees and the advantage i have in, in baseball is that uh, they kind of want to come work for their favorite sports team before they go work on wall street or silicon valley and that's a huge advantage i think football is gonna have the same thing yet people are passionate about that business and really smart and so as a result the business is going to become brighter smarter and smarter yeah, absolutely. Billy, it's been a, an absolute pleasure. I won't keep you any longer. I know you've probably got a lot of, of things to do today, but that was, was really, really good. So thank you very much. Oh, no, thanks. I'm really flattered. I said I don't do a whole lot of interviews, but I kind of never get tired of talking about football. So uh, it's a lot of fun. So I'm, I'm flattered that you would even care. So there he is, the man who inspired the methods by which Liverpool FC signed their players. If you haven't ever seen the film Moneyball, do go and watch it. It's available on Netflix, certainly in the UK. Liverpool's owner, John W. Henry, is played by Arliss Howard, while Billy Bean is played by Brad Pitt. It's mainly about baseball, but hopefully like this podcast, it's also an insight into the way in which Liverpool go about signing players across all levels. Hopefully you've enjoyed this, the latest edition of the Blood Red podcast, and if so, do feel free to leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts from. That will help us hugely to do more interviews like this in the coming months and years, And do keep your suggestions coming for future pods too in our Blood Red Facebook group. For now though, I've been Matt Addison and until next time, it's goodbye for now. You've been listening to the Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo.